Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're talking about My Rogue to Ruin by Erica Ridley. This was just published in 2023 and is the fourth book in the Wild Winchesters series. And full disclosure, we did receive a complimentary copy for this review. And we have reviewed all of the other earlier books in this series. Um, so you can use our WordPress to search our episode archive and find out when those episodes were. <laughs> yeah, because we don't remember. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> should we read the book jacket for this one? I think we should. Lord Adrian Webb is a no-good, roguish, rakish scoundrel of the First Order, which is why his father sends him to the continent and cuts him off without a farthing. When penniless in Rome, what's a disgraced gentleman to do but dabble in some light forgery? Sorry. After all, better to leave the original works of art where they belong instead of some English snob's drawing room. But soon his scheme snowballs out of control, and a blackmailer is out to ruin him. The Winchester family is known for their daring capers to help those in need. Until now, Marjorie has always let her siblings take the lead when it comes to planning undercover work. But someone in London is trying to pass off counterfeits, and this time she's the only one with the skill needed to find the culprit. Her investigations lead her straight to Lord Adrian Webb. But every time Marjorie thinks she's figured Adrian out, she learns something new that turns all her assumptions on their head. He's a sinner, a saint, a heartless scoundrel, a loyal brother, a liar, a good kisser. Er, wait, she can't afford to lose herself in the passionate embrace of a man she'll have to turn over to the magistrate as soon as the case is closed. That's cute. I liked it. It's cute. A sinner, a saint. It's a little <laughs> overwrought for where this book goes. I mean, look, is it a little overwrought? Sure, it is. But it's fine. It's I don't know. fine. Yeah. I, I have no big issues with it. Do you think we did any better, Lane? I don't know. Well, as usual, we generated a number between 1 and 50 and then wrote our own summaries based on that number. And for this episode, the number was 34. I'll start. You're finally heading a heist of your own and everything is going great when suddenly the master forger you're stuck with turns out to be not only not a villain, but also hot. Yeah, it's really hard to turn on hot people. Uh, yeah, it is. Marjorie struggles. Um, I get it. Me too. What's my summary? The artist slash forager of the Winchesters finally gets to shine as they bust a counterfeiter targeting desperate people pawning heirlooms. Marjorie is primed to hate the artist until she learns he's an unwilling accomplice. Yeah. I also thought you would appreciate, Lane, this is in the book jacket, so I'm not ruining anything. The fact that he forged pieces, but it's it's it, it was really interesting because the person he forged them for doesn't know their forgeries he thinks they're the originals and he was like why would i steal a vase when it can stay like in the country where it's supposed to be and i can just forge it instead yeah so basically the evil guy he's been working with in london thinks he's an antiquities trafficker he's actually a forger and the problem is that he tricked the guy. 
I actually really liked it. I was really mad at first when I thought when Adrian, like literally half of chapter one, when Adrian just says he had a crate full of antiquities and that, you know, it was very trendy for people who could go throughout the continent during wartime to ship back or bring back looted goods from the places where they'd been. And I was like, I am not about to sit here and sympathize with an art forager. I mean, with a trafficker, art trafficker. And then he's like, and nobody needs to know they're fake because he left all the originals exactly where they were. And it's totally fine because the only people who are being sort of robbed of their money are rich people who shouldn't be buying the shit anyway. And I was like, I love this logic of a victimless crime. Let's do this. Yeah, I was, I really, I was really into it. I was really into it. Loved Me that setup, actually. Too. Um, which brings us into the tropes. Uh, I think the kind of big one is actually forced proximity. And it's interesting because it's a different way of doing forced proximity. Exactly. Yes. So as the jacket implies, and my summary says more explicitly, the guy Adrian tricked, the leader of a criminal enterprise who thought he was getting looted goods, but in fact was getting forgeries, catches Adrian out and decides to force Adrian to start counterfeiting money. He's like, if you're a forager, fine, you're going to forage actual coins for me. And then rather than going after the big fish like the aristocrats who can bring down actual punishment on me, I'll give the fake coins to people who come into my pawn shop who are desperate. And then that way it'll make it much harder to trace back to me. And even if we get caught, you're the forager. You're the one who's in trouble. But he keeps Adrian basically imprisoned because his family cut him off and he hasn't been back to London in years. And so there's sort of nobody who's going to come for him. So Adrian is like being held at gunpoint, forced to do this. Marjorie shows up when the Winchesters get asked for help by one of these people who's pawned a fairly er family heirloom and realize the coins are counterfeit and decides to walk in and basically accuse them of counterfeiting and say she can do better which will give her the excuse of being in the building, give her a chance to snoop around and hopefully find out more about the operation, where the pawned goods are being held, blah, 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 blah. So there, this plan works, and they end up cooped up together for 10 hours a day forging coins. She quickly realizes he's doing a bad job on purpose in an attempt to get evil guy caught, but also to slow the rate of production. So hopefully like this whole ruse has more time to be exposed and they're melting down fewer people's heirlooms and all of that good stuff. So they're just cooped up together in this coin forging outfit, like constantly. And the fact that they're doing a really bad job on purpose means they're only working like 10 minutes out of every hour. So they're yes. really bored the rest of the time. Yes, I, I loved this. I actually loved it. I thought it was great setup, really great setup. I loved it too, and I loved the way Marjorie's internal conflict was presented at the beginning of this book. Mm-hmm. Like, she's the quiet one who stays up in her art studio, and some of that, she and she even, like, reflects on, that's not really by nature, it's by necessity. She's partially deaf. Large crowds overwhelm her. She has synesthesia, um, but she can't, and that combination of things sort of means she's taken a background role in like life and in the family, but with her siblings marrying off and getting partners and 
in life, but also in their Winchester criminal solving enterprises, she's really feeling out of place and stunted. Um, so. Yeah. I think she also feels like she has to prove herself. Yes. But it's which, like she has to prove herself now because she feels like she's getting left behind. Right. There's a little bit of everything for my sister trope, uh, not on her part, but on his part. So he has a younger sister who's basically the only person he's kind of sad that he left behind when he had to go to the continent. And now he's being blackmailed partially because of her. Right. So I think this gets a little bit into his backstory. So he has this reputation for being this absolute rogue, rake, scoundrel who did this unforgivable thing. Mm -hmm. And it's earned him a reputation. And his sister was young enough when he was banished by their father that, like, she doesn't really know what to believe or what's true. So she's, like, struggling to open up to him and confide in him about his own her own troubles, which is why she's gotten into something that he can be blackmailed over that he wasn't aware of. But I think it's interesting because you learn later in the book that he did not earn that reputation. Right. And I'll leave this it is at an that interesting for one. spoilers. Yeah. I thought this was an interesting one, too, because on the one hand, no, he didn't earn the reputation. On the other hand, he does feel a little bit almost that he deserved some of it. So I thought that was kind of an interesting psychological juxtaposition which i i thought was well done they were really interesting people and the fact that they were both foragers in different ways that he was forging art for profit taking advantage of aristocrats and she forges art and various items in the name of the winchester's version of metting out justice like there's a whole lot of she believes that it's not following the law that's important it's doing the right thing then she has no problem breaking the law for the greater good whereas he sort of thinks you're a bad person if you do bad things and he's chosen to wear that mantle and commit crimes but he thinks they're morally irredeemable whether or not they're done for a good reason there was a lot of really interesting setup here yeah absolutely that was really good um did they get away with it lane sort of i mean i think this is a trope in like the heisty books and the Winchesters Absolutely. are always a little bit of a heisty book. Sometimes it's, it's book. all about the clean getaway. Sometimes it's about getting caught and using getting caught to your advantage or getting caught on purpose. And then it's how you get out of trouble. That's the interesting part. And this book does the, they don't get away with it, but that helps them in the end. Yes. It's a, it's a whole... I don't think she leans in quite as much as she could have to the heist, which is that they expected to get caught. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Right. Right. And then like, there's always like that last minute thing where you're like, ha ha ha, you thought you thought you won, but actually we did because we thought of everything ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. Right? But I did like it. I like that part. And this isn't a trope, but it's Meg's thing. So every time it comes up, we have to mention it. She is older than him. Yeah. By like two years. But yeah. Three. She's 29 and he is 26. There you go. Major age gap. Huge. Look, for an older woman, younger man, yup. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? 
Um, so basically, I'm sure you guys heard throughout our listing of the tropes that we were really, really into this setup. Uh, so these characters and the situation they find themselves in has so much potential and was so interesting. Like, it really got me into the book. Right. But here comes the but. There was something just missing for me. And it's it's hard for me to put my finger on it. I think it it dragged on a little long. So mm-hmm. the setup is that she thinks he's an accomplice. That she thinks he's forging on purpose to make money off of these poor victims. And I mean poor literally. Like they don't have money and they're committing crimes against the people who have the least. She comes to learn, obviously, that he is an unwilling accomplice, just trying not to get, like, his kneecaps shot out, at the very least. Um, And there's a lot of scenes of her reporting to work every day, because she's allowed to come and go initially. And the way they interact with each other in, like, the foraging scene and the way they kill the time. And that is the book from, like, 20 to 70%. I have to say... I agree. I, you know what? I agree with you. I have to say one of the things where there was a lot of potential that was not lived up to was that we just talked about how they are alone with each other for like 10 to 12 hours every day from, mm-hmm. from dawn to dusk. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're working for maybe 10 minutes out of every hour. Not only that, they have there's an expectation of how much they can produce in a day. So, like, they could have done that in the first two hours and then, like, gotten it on the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that this book was not as steamy as it could have been or as it should have been, to be completely honest with you. Like, there were a real missed opportunity there. Yeah, it was a lot of slow character development between the two of them. And the only break between their conversations and relatively chase kissing in this room was the occasional scene of like her at the dinner table with her family debriefing. Mm-hmm. And I think this book would have been better served if that middle timeline had been sped up by like 50% of the book. All mm-hmm. that's really happened is she's infiltrated the ring. Right. And started realizing he's not actually the guilty party. Like it is a slow build. And it, Again, I don't want you guys to think that I the book has to have a ton of sex for me to like it. It's not what I'm saying, but I think it really could have used that relationship building through physical intimacy, and there was a lot of opportunity for it. Like, th- when they do finally decide to, you know, get more intimate with each other, it kind of like, now? This is the time that you want to do it? Okay. Like, basically, the stakes are raised on the crime side. Before mm-hmm. the stakes get raised physically, and there was, and so it made when they finally just started started. Wow, it made when they finally started hooking up feel a little bit like as Meg is saying now because there was all of this opportunity when they like really didn't have anything better to do, and then they are they end up squeezing in the sex as like uh we got one night. It's like well you could have had every day for like six weeks. <laughs> yeah, well, and that that could have been too where he's they're they're starting to get to know each other right Mm -hmm. and this is how she decides that she can trust him right Mm -hmm. and and again you can see that reflected in their their physical relationship she decides that she can trust him 
psychologically and then she can trust him physically and you know it, it would have really worked in my opinion well and one of his big things is trust and yep. it could have been another way that they were opening up to each other she is very open-hearted because she's got this big loving family that has taught her that like working together is always worth it he doesn't he hasn't learned that lesson so ways that she could like show up for him and be reliable would be huge in building their relationship so i, I just it, it was a little bit i really like the characters i really like the setup i really like the idea i really like the way that they were using their talents i liked the way that she brought some other winchester missions in that he didn't know about and he was like helping her on the side like i liked all of that stuff i just needed it to move a little faster a lot faster I agree. One thing I do want to mention briefly, I, I don't I don't know if this belongs in content warnings. I think we can move on to content warnings. Uh, I want to mention it because uh, Lane mentioned that she's partially deaf. And I mean, I am not deaf. I did. My mother is a special ed teacher. I think I've talked about this before mm -hmm. in other episodes who focused on deaf and hard of hearing. And so I, I know a lot of deaf people. Um, and the way it was depicted here just didn't feel authentic to me, right? Like I agree. She's, she can speak with no issues. Like once in a while, they're like, oh, her volume was loud or her intonation was odd. Like that's that's all they say. And I'm like, okay, most deaf people really, it was like very difficult for them to speak. Like, And I get it. Like it was set up she's, that way. She's but. partially deaf. You don't know exactly what that means. She went partially deaf in one ear because of about a smallpox as a child. So she wasn't born deaf. But, but I agree with you. It, it seemed like it was only mentioned that she was hard of hearing when it was convenient to the plot. Exactly. That's exactly right. And then there were times, for example, when she was like, oh, this is going to really work. This is my deafness will help us because I'm very good at lip reading, for example. So she's like, oh, I'll infiltrate. And then I'll be able to like eavesdrop on conversations that maybe you guys, her her siblings, wouldn't be able to to do. But that never comes into play at all. And in fact, it just it just comes into play when she's like, "Oh shoot, they're they're turned away from me, so I can't understand what they're saying." And I was like, "Oh come on, you know, like just even just one moment of it, it would have been great." Yeah, I also want to add though this is less offensive because it's not a disability. Um, she also has synesthesia. She seems to have all the synesthesias. I don't know. It like it was very weirdly described. Um, it was like okay, I know it was supposed to be synesthesia, but it felt like she could see people's auras. <laughs> yes, and that's what I wanted to say. It especially bothered me in one scene where her sister, one of her sisters, shows up, and she can tell she's pregnant because her aura is different, and yep. but, and that's like being passed off as part of her synesthesia. And I was very much like, okay, look, again, I don't have synesthesia. That is not how synesthesia works. It reminded me way more of, of a paranormal romance, mm -hmm. like from a Jane, Jane Ann Krentz uh, contemporary um, arcane society novel where there's an aura reader. Just like, oh, his aura is spiking. Like, that's what it felt like. Yeah, it's like, oh, I can tell you're pregnant because your vibes are different. And I'm like, look, she claims she's got like synesthesia of color pretty much. And like, the people I've heard of or know with synesthesia of color, it's like, oh, the sound of your name is this color. It's not exactly. like when I look at you, your color changes depending on your vibes. Exactly. It's, it's, it's vibes. It's vibes. <laughs> 
Um, more of a content warning is that she is treated like she's an idiot or an imbecile because of her deafness. She so, uses that to her disability sometimes. like To, to the, her advantage. Mm -hmm. so, she uses that to her advantage sometimes. Like, she's aware that she sort of placates the guards because they don't expect much of her. Mm -hmm. But I think it still can be triggering for sort of de deaf people on the page to be treated like they're slow for certain people, and that definitely mm -hmm. happens. Yeah. And then... <sighs> He So when they first meet, he's like, oh, my God, I got to get her out of here because these are bad people and she doesn't realize what she's getting into. Of course, she does. But like he doesn't get that. Right. He, he's not sure what she's up to, but he's like, this woman is not prepared for this viper's nest. Yeah. He's like, even if she is a forger and like wants to do illegal shit, like she doesn't deserve to be caught up in, in this specific shit. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, I know how I'll scare her away. I'll seduce her. And so he makes her deliberately uncomfortable. Yeah. With lewd commentary. Yeah. Pretty much. Like, he doesn't force himself on her. But I'm just, I'm getting a little squicked out. Well, I'm just getting a little trend. annoyed by, yes, exactly, exactly. We've talked about it in lots of different books, actually. And it's it's just annoying that, like, men decide that even if they would never do it, in quotation marks, the, the fact of, like, threatening sexual assault is a good thing to do because it'll actually save the woman. Especially when the whole, prep, like, premise of how they get to know each other so well in this situation is once the doors are closed, no one can hear what they say. Yep. So rather than telling her, hey, like, I'm not here willingly. This is way more dangerous than you understand. If you have any brains, you'll get out while you can. Yeah, I mean, what are they going to do? Punish him more for telling her that? No. But they also, like, the whole premise is they never hear the shit they say in the room together. Well, that too, yeah. So, like, it's, he's stuff. not in danger of being overheard, as is proven throughout the book. So why doesn't he attempt other ways of getting her to leave before exactly. trying to scare her with the threat of the fact that he wants to fuck her? Yeah. And, of course, she's like, oh, he wants to fuck me? Yeah. Which, <laughs> I feel like I'm hating on this more than I want to. I, I found it really charming. I just found mm. it, like, the stuff that squicked me really squicked me. There are specific specific things that I think, I don't know, the more we read, the more I'm like, really? Really? You know? Anyway. Uh, sexiness. It should have been sexier. Like I said, uh, there's really only one full scene in the entire book. And it happens way later than you think. Yeah. And I didn't hate it. I didn't hate the scene itself. Like, I thought it was, I thought it was an interesting one. Because, again, she is, so this is one of the scenes trope where she's a virgin, but he thinks she's not. He assumes that she isn't. Mm -hmm. Just basically because she hasn't said that she is. And he thinks, I don't know, he just thinks she's not. And so when he finds out that she is, he's like, oh, no, like, I ruined you. And she's like, dude, I chose to do this with my eyes open. Like, don't mess this up. Mm -hmm. um, so I liked it. I liked that take on it. Um, the take on the specific, like, I didn't know you were a virgin trope. I didn't hate it here. But that's the, that's the most I can say about it. 
yeah. Anyway, there you go. That's the book. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>